Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canine's Talking Sense. I am your host, Cameron Ford. I want to start off this episode giving a few thanks and shout outs to uh, some of the show supporters and friends of mine. First, I want to thank Bill Gaskins of Integrity Noseworks. If you guys do not know who Bill is, we've done a few webinars together. He is retired Air Force military working dog handler, kennel master supervisor, has been doing the nose work and AKC scent work sport for a little while now and has really built a business, Integrity Nose Works, and it ends with an X. So not W-O-R-K, it's W-O-R-X. So look up Integrity Nose Works. He is up in the Northeast part of the United States. You guys in that region would benefit quite a bit doing some work with Bill Bill makes amazing PowerPoints, graphics. He makes lots of posts on his social media, which can be found, again, under Integrity Noseworks. So go check out Bill. Go check out what he shares, the information. He and I will be doing another podcast here soon. Next one is Kelsey over at Grassroots Canine Maryland. Kelsey is, for those who don't know, been the breeder of a a couple litters now, of some great Labrador pups. And I now have one of those puppies, and we're raising him. His name's Logan. Logan is actually one of the puppies that is available if someone is interested in having us raise and train a dog for them in any type of detection, basically. The only thing we don't do right now is medical-type detection, but we do pretty much everything else. So Logan is one of those puppies that we got. Kelsey brought him to us. She also has given one of her pups to Michelle Mon, Dr. Michelle Mon, who now has Pat Nolan doing some training and raising of that puppy. But check out Grassroots Canine Maryland. She is putting together a educational series on how to develop a puppy. And it goes from eight weeks to 16 weeks. She has it broken down into the weekly and daily schedules, benchmarks, things like that. So Go check out Grassroots Canine Maryland, and Canine Kelsey is also her handle on social media. Another thank you and shout out goes to Canines United. Canines United is a nonprofit that 
has really been stepping up the game for the canine training community. Uh, a good friend of mine, Jay Nix, and Michael Goosby sit on the board, and they have been really putting together some amazing training seminars that are totally for free. They just did one in Sioux City, Iowa. Before that, they were out in L.A. Really, really, really great nonprofit uh, with a solid goal behind uh, their mission, which is to help out law enforcement in more than just one way. Training is one of the ways, but whether it's equipment, you name it, Canines United has been there to help the canine world, and they have done so in amazing ways. And the people they have put together, like Jay Nix, Mike Goosby, Carlos Ramirez, Justin Rigney, Mike Lilly, and I know I'm, I'm forgetting somebody else. <laughs> they have really put together some some good stuff. I hope to join them. They've asked me twice, and of course, both times I'm always busy on some other thing I can't get away from. But stay tuned. I hope to join them in the near future on one of those uh, Canines United seminars. So go check them out. Last one is Leash and Harness Coffee. Great supporters of the podcast. If you're looking for a really good coffee. If you're a coffee connoisseur, go check out Leash and Harness Coffee. They've got the Fur Missile Blend. They got the Handler Blend. A lot of good uh, different types of coffee for your caffeinated needs. Go check them out, Leash and Harness Coffee. So, little updates on what's going on here at Ford Canine. As some of you have seen, we are definitely full of some various puppies. I've got Two that are in the 10-week-old range now, one working cocker named Ammo. Uh, He's also one of the puppies that is available that hasn't been selected yet. So again, like Logan, if you are looking for a puppy that you want us to custom train to whatever your detection need is, contact me about that. Typical email, Cameron at FordK9.com. Then we also have Bolt. He is a English Springer Spaniel from the same breeder I've been getting my working cocker from. And uh, wow, what a dog. He's going to be a currency detection dog. Then we also have Quill. A lot of you guys have seen Quill on my social media. Quill is a little all-star, another working cocker. And he is going to be a bed bug dog. And then, of course, the main four that you guys have seen, Chip, Rip, Banner, and Pixel, Banner and Pixel have their careers ahead of them to be bed bug dogs as well. And then we also have another little working cocker named Tegan. She is going to be a bed bug dog as well. And then we have Exo, a male. He is 18 months old and he is uh, unassigned as well. So I kind of have three dogs that are looking for their careers. That would be Exo, who is 18 months old. And then Logan, the Labrador, who is right now a little over four months old. And then, of course, little Ammo, who is 10, going on 11 weeks old. So those puppies have been keeping us busy. I've been trying to share some of the developmental aspects that we've been doing. And one of the important things I try to share is we develop these pups in like a compartmental style learning. So, for example, is we do a lot of hunting skill building. And that hunting skill building is done not associated to odor. Reason being is puppies go through different stages. Some of those stages have a fear stage built in. We don't know when those will occur. We have, you know, a timeline 
uh, where we could expect it, but it may happen, it may not happen. We don't know exactly. So in these stages, it's all about just skill building. It's all about building the skill of hunting, hunting for food or hunting for toy. I'm just using the environment to kind of guide them and show them they can hunt in all different types of environments and that the hunting is rewarding. We also do impulse control games. So some of these impulse control games help them later on when I want an indication. They actually have built that skill of impulse control and know how to hold despite whatever I might do as a handler, me reaching into my pouch or pocket or me standing still or me moving or me dancing around crushing grapes. Uh, Whatever it is, I want the dog to know that, hey, when you have found your target, do this. This is what I need you to do. So the learning we do is compartmentalized. Along with that is the environmental aspects. We get these puppies out and about everywhere. They go any place I can think of, get exposed to different environments, people. We have specialized toys that move. One of our new ones we just got today was a stuffed animal fish that flops around. And We weren't sure what that would cause the dogs to do. Would it startle them? Would it do? Man, (laughs) Mother Nature took over and they were like, I'm supposed to capture that thing and run around and probably try to kill it. So they ran around holding this fish that wiggled in their mouth and it intensified quite a bit their possession and things like that. So we were joking around going, that's going to be the funniest detection reward toy is if we had to use one of those. So, and you can probably hear them barking a little bit in the background. So we've had a lot of fun with developmental. The other big thing, I've been some uh, doing some traveling with canine cognition testing. And the newest part that is nearly done, we are finishing up some last little pieces And then we begin doing some video recording to make online classes and to make webinars is the puppy cognition. So we have the puppies, obviously. We've been doing the testing. We've been setting up the testing areas so that way people can easily duplicate this and apply this where you guys live. So stay tuned. Natalie has been diligently working and developing part of her house to be the puppy cognition center so we can later on like i said do some professional videos for everybody out there to watch and learn from so stay tuned for that and then of course the standard cognition the normal canine cognition and just to kind of define it for you guys puppy cognition goes from eight weeks old can be younger but typically eight weeks old to right around four or five months old and then the standard you know i would call it young dog adult Cognition testing is six months and older, again, depending on the dog. And those videos and online courses are also being developed. The problem was I wanted to make this where it made sense for the end user, you guys, to be able to hop online, watch the videos, and then be able to do this. But without me being there to catch your errors, I have to come up with ways to talk about the common mistakes that are made that might skew the results of your test. So I want to be very clear in the online instruction if I can't be there in front of you to help you navigate the common things that people do or forget to do that have that uh, effect in in a way that may skew a result. So we've got it pretty well narrowed down. So we are finishing that up. A lot of this stuff's going to come out in the fall, maybe early winter. So puppy cognition and canine cognition online to also include canine cognition instructor classes. 
So all of those who have already attended our canine cognition class already have three days in the bank, so to speak, for your canine cognition instructor. Canine cognition instructor will require you to do the tests on numerous dogs as well as train others how to do the tests. And once you demonstrate that and you've gone through our testing process, you will become a canine cognition instructor and you can go out there and help others and do testings and help all of us become better with our dogs and better and more efficient about training our dogs. So if you're interested in any of those classes, canine cognition, puppy cognition, or canine cognition instructor, just go to FordCanine.com, scroll down to the bottom where it says chat with us, and sign up and to say mailing list in the comments. And we will put you on the mailing list if you're not already on there. And in the future, the whole website is being redone right now. We will have everything set up and you will get emails when all of this goes live. But I need you guys to, uh, if you want to get the updates on this, go to the website, go to the let's chat or let's talk section down the very bottom of the page and then just sign up and then that way you're on the mailing list. And lastly, I wanted to talk about certifications. Certifications come in different sizes, shapes, and so forth. Majority of canine teams certify with a bona fide organization or association that has been nationally recognized or has been around for quite some time. And because of their size of membership or the fact that it's actually faced various legal scrutiny, kind of becomes the go-to depending on what area you're in. And depending on your area, it kind of deems what do most in that area certify to. Then there's specialty like bed bugs. There's a couple different organizations that are out there that have created certification standards. My advice and what I tell people when they reach out to certify, because for me, I'm a certifying official for a few different organizations and state police officers training standards. There are a number, like I said, of different ones out there, and I would recommend doing what's common in your area. Having multiple certifications isn't needed, but it's not a bad thing either. The buyer beware part of that is you want to have a certification that is done so with legitimacy. And what I mean by that is it has a very clear written standard as to what the certification requirements are. It has written standards to what the certifying officials are required to do and what it takes to become a certifying official for whatever organization it is. And then there is also the process in which the certification is set up. So you have those three things. Certification standard, what does the handler have to do in the dog? What does the certifying official do and how do they become that way? And then three, how is the certification set up? And then a fourth piece is a grievance process. If something doesn't happen or something goes awry one way or another, what is the grievance process for protesting the results of a certification. And all of this should be very clearly spelled out in writing, available for the individual who's certifying to review prior to certification, so that way all of this information is very clear and spelled out. If this is not available, 
whether it be because uh, the certification is held by the vendor by their own ways of creating a certification, even though it's probably a carbon copy of another one, or a nonprofit who offers certifications for canine teams. You need to just make sure that they have that. A problem could be is if you have a grievance about what occurred, if you are grieving to the people who certified you, that's not a really a fair process. So that's an example of uh, a problematic uh, system for a certification. A lot of times I think people just want that piece of paper so they'll just take a certification from wherever it comes from. And we should strive to do better because if that's what you want and you're just looking for an independent review, then just have somebody who's independent of your training, of your dog, set up a search for you, you know, review you how you did, and you can go to your printer and print out your own certificate because it's the same value as some of those things that are out there. I recommend, like I said, going with a bona fide Program and bona fide basically means, like I said earlier, something that has a process that is well established in writing. It has also been vetted and looked at legally and can withstand that legal scrutiny. So when it comes to certifications, I hope that helps. If there, because there's a number of new detection dog programs that are out there, uh, detection dog skills, and there may not be a certification or review that's kind of met a bona fide standard yet. So I implore you to find programs that do exist with a bona fide process for certification. And in lieu of that, Make sure that it has many of those things I listed that'll help you demonstrate the reliability of the canine team. You know, and certifications are starting to even evolve as we speak right now with OSAC and NIST and ASB all coming together to help create a better practice or I should say a best practices type setup. More of these national organizations are making some minor modifications to this. So that way we can have a uh, system in place that is fairly a good review of the canine team all the way from odor recognition to how you deploy your dog on an actual search. So I hope that helps. You know, this is just a fun topic to talk about because it can be, even though it's certifications, you can run the gamut of what's out there. So with all that said, now it's on to this fun next episode. Again, sticking with the conservation theme, this one is called Muscle Dogs. And now on to the episode. On this episode, we are going to continue the journey of looking at various different detection disciplines ones that aren't as common and mainstream as your narcotics or explosives and so forth. So with me, I have a guest who has a very unique, diverse background with detection dogs, but in this field, it is very new and it's in conservation. Debbie, welcome to the show, and I'll let you kind of do your name, background, the whole nine yards, but tell us kind of, you know, your journey and and how you are in the world of detection that you're in right now. Great. Hi, Cameron. Well, I'm Debbie Deshawn, and I am the owner-operator of Muscle Dogs. My journey started, you know, like 
a lot of people who do dogs. I wanted to be a veterinarian and <laughs> went to UC Davis and didn't have the grades that that would take. Mm-hmm. So I applied three years, you know, tried. I actually, when I graduated UC Davis, went to Moore Park College to the Exotic Animal Training and Management Program, just trying to do something and bring my grades up, trying to get into vet school. And that's where I actually got my love for training, um, for training animals in general. It was wonderful. From there, I got a job with American Humane going on the movie sets and making sure that the animals were being cared for, you know, during the filming and that they weren't being put in any bad positions. And then film would be accredited that, you know, no, no animals were harmed. Mm-hmm. So so that was a ton of fun. Um, from there, I met a bunch of trainers and worked for a couple of them. The one that I learned a ton from was Carl Miller. And he uh, worked on Cujo. That was way before me. But then I actually worked on Beethoven. That's my okay. uh, the, the one film my name's in the credits on. <laughs> and, I say uh, Beethoven 1 through 8 or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just on Beethoven 1. But okay, yeah, gotcha. so that was a ton of fun. And I just learned so much. And then that's where I got my appreciation of dogs was okay. from w- working with Carl. And so from there, got married and moved to Northern California. There's not a lot of movie work there. And the school district where I was living um, was starting to use the drug dogs in the schools. And I was Mm. like, well, well, shoot, I can do that. And so I applied for the job. And it actually took me three years to get the job, (laughs) but I did. And so that was wonderful. And three years later, they actually franchised. And so I was able to purchase my area. And so I've been doing drug dogs since 1996, owned it since 1999. So that's where my appreciation for detection dogs came in. Okay. So from there... I was invited to a demonstration that the California Department of Fish and Wildlife was doing at a lake near me because the quagga mussels had just come from the East Coast to Lake Mead, which is in Nevada. Mm -hmm. And so the local lake was learning about them because it was something to be concerned of. So this was in about 2008. I went to a demonstration and they had a dog that found the mussels. So I was like, well... Well, shoot, Mm -hmm. that's one odor. (laughs) I can do that. So that's how that whole concept even started. It actually took me almost two and a half years just to get a permit to have the muscles to train the first dog. So I didn't have my first dog until about 2010. Okay. And that was Popeye. And so he was a chocolate lab and just absolutely loved him. He just passed away this last oh, year. Oh, man. He was just the face the face of muscle dog. Sure. And so, yeah, so we traveled for, gosh, probably four or five years, just like going to conferences, learning all about the muscles, learning how to do the inspections. And, I mean, I kind of wound up becoming a you know, a professional on it just because, Mm -hmm. you know, you need to understand what you're finding. You need to understand where to search for it, how to search for it and what levels to be looking for. And so, you know, I mean, in order to do it right, you have to understand all of that. Yeah. 
And so I did a lot of traveling and this was just me and Popeye and, you know, speaking at things and just going to conferences. And then we probably got our first paid gig around 2013 and it was like, you know, two weekends in the whole year. You know? Wow. Yeah. But it was exciting. Sure. And yeah, so that's how it all started. And now I have 11 dogs. Today, actually, Memorial Day weekend, we had seven teams out. It's really grown. It's yeah. been exciting. So I'll start off with, you know, you had the career as a detection dog handler and as a civilian in the narcotics world. What was it like to, you know, on that journey? Because there's a lot of people who that used to be kind of like a gateway spot for a civilian to get into professional dog handling was doing having their own business or doing some type of narc detection for businesses, schools, homes, things of that nature. What was that like and what were your pros and cons that you saw from being in that detection part of the world at first? Well, I mean, that's all I knew because that's how I learned it and I'm still in it. So, so there's that. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I learned a ton and, and you have people teaching you because I was working for somebody at first. Mm -hmm. So, so they're teaching me and, you know, I'm learning their methods and, and learning, have a ton of support, Mm -hmm. any questions I have. You know, I can call them. I mean, this was, you know, before, basically before cell phones and stuff. So back then, you know, I couldn't videotape and be like, hey, what am I doing wrong? You know, things have changed a lot and people need to appreciate the help of video. Please appreciate it. Yeah. No, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, you know, we, we just had a ton of support. And actually, to tell you the truth, I was awful. My first year, I was awful. I don't even know why they kept me. And, but they did. And, and, you know, I don't know if they saw something in me or felt bad for me or what. I mean, I had a dog that, you know, basically they said, if the dog sits, it's an alert. And so the dog would sit and I'd be like, alert. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, yeah, no. And I'm like, but he sat. Yeah. You know, you told me if he sits, it's an alert. <laughs> so anyhow, so. What would you say your, your biggest hurdle was in all that though? I think my biggest hurdle was not understanding pre-alert. Okay, yeah. Not that I didn't understand it, but that I just, first off, it was just such a seasoned dog who knew how to pull it over on the new handler. Sure. You know, and so, you know, I I try to explain to everybody, it's a dance. When we're working Mm -hmm. these dogs, it's a dance. And I, I didn't have the rhythm. I got it, you know, and like I said, I was really, really lucky that, that they worked with me and that they put the time into me and trusted me. And, and they've actually finally gave me a different dog because that dog just owned me. Sure. And so then once I got the second dog, it went a whole lot better. So the biggest thing was like reading the dogs and, you know, the typical new handler experience where you don't know what you don't know. Right, right. And your dog knows more than, like you said, than you did and knew how to manipulate you for reinforcement more than likely. Yeah. And then the pressure being on you to be like, to perform like, well, if there's drugs here, I got to find it so I can tell them, you know, so they can, you know, deal with it. So 
as you progress with that, you get your second dog. Yeah, I mean, and it was quick. I got my second dog probably within like a month or two because they're like, yeah, this isn't going well. (laughs) It's not like I went years, but I'm just saying like originally it just wasn't great. (laughs) You know, so ask the questions, stick with it, you know, you know, basically if you have good mentors, you have to have the good mentors who are willing to put the time into you because you, you can't just do it on your own. Yeah, you know, I don't think. I mean, it's well, it's obviously way more difficult. I just had a actually a narcotics handler uh, message me today. You know, he just graduated school. He went through a four week or four or six week school. I can't remember exactly which, but of course now his dog's reading him, knows his body language when he's about ready to get his toy, all the kind of typical stuff. And he's by himself, and he wants to ask me for advice over Facebook. And I'm like, I'm sorry, this isn't the platform. Even though, like you said, you know things are a lot easier this day with video and uh, how we can communicate. But, you know, it's that new handler experience. I, I just told him, I said, one, stick with who your trainer was. You need to contact them and, you know, utilize that support. They train the dog, right. they provide the dog, so stay with that. And learn as much as you can so that way you can take the experiences you're having. And in those cases, it's sometimes learning what not to do versus you know, learning what to do because that's part of it. But um, like you just said, having that support structure that can be there to help you because when you're new, you're just trying to do the job. You're just trying to be successful. And every time your dog does something, you're like, I hope this is right, you know? Right, right. And back then, you know, and when you're new, it's still black and white. The dog sits, it's Mm -hmm, an alert. mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. In In your head. Yeah. And, you know, and you haven't, learn the nuances. I mean, and it's funny because I've, I progressed to the point where I recall I was doing a, this was obviously years later. I had a dog named Mutley and I was doing a certification and this dog was not the easiest dog to work. And the certifying official looked at me and he's like, you're working harder than that dog is, but that's how that dog had to be worked, you know? And so, I mean, you know, it it progresses, you Mm -hmm. know, once, once you get better at it and, and stuff, but, but in the beginning, I would have never been able to do anything like that at all. Yeah. As it progresses, what would you say the biggest change that has happened for you that went from, or just in the in the industry on the narcotics or schools kind of uh, thing, from when you first started to where we're at now? So meeting more people and listening to them and taking what you want and leaving the rest mm-hmm. as far as like advice goes or new techniques or anything like that realizing that it's all tools for the tool bags Mm -hmm. in this situation somebody might give you some advice and in this situation it might work perfectly and in this situation it might not work at all but it doesn't mean that the advice is bad it just means that it didn't work in that situation so taking all of this information and cataloging it for tools in your toolbox Mm -hmm. That's in my my personal growth. I think has been where where that has been. Back in the day, it was pretty much either you're a cop. I wasn't yeah. only not a cop; I was a female. Yep. And so I didn't get. Uh, I, I'm not saying that um, you know everybody was mean to me or rude to me or anything, but nobody would, like outside of my company. Mm-hmm. You know was like, hey, let me help you. 
the very first person who did that for me was Mike Herstick. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so that was, you know, 2001 after 9-11, I had just gotten a bomb dog. I mean, the craziest thing I had, I had ordered a bomb dog and I was supposed to like two weeks after September 11th, I was supposed to go to Texas to pick it up. And then September 11th happened. And yeah. so I literally jumped in my car and drove to Texas because I was like, I'm getting my dog. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was. Those were hot I'd, commodities I'd, at that time. Well, and I'd ordered it months. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd been ready for it months before and everything, you know. And so I went, I got my dog. I mean, before I got to California, I had work for it, you know, oh, obviously. Yeah. And I'd have to say, you know, and Mike was the first person like outside of our group who was like, yeah, you're out there. You're working a bomb dog. What can I do to help you? Because sure. any dog that's out there doing it needs to be doing it well. And mm -hmm. you need to understand what you need to understand. And, and that was like my, and this was, again, I, I'd started in 96 and this is in like 2001. And so, I mean, this yeah. is, you know, five years in where it was the first time where like, I was like, oh, okay, there, there are really good people in this community. You know yeah. what I mean? Because it was definitely hard for, I mean, I started in 1994. Right. And you're absolutely right. The dynamics were, you know, my joke I always make is canine was, you know, occupied by individuals who either had to die or retire for you to get in. And that was being a guy. So, yeah. you know, yeah. when there were women involved, it was even harder just because it wasn't the norm. Right. And on top of that, you know, it was a different mentality. You know, it wasn't, I wouldn't say always so much of a sexist thing. It was just one of those things that where I would say commitment was always questioned. Like, okay, are you really doing this because you want to work the dog or are you doing this because this is fun, cute thing to do with a dog, you know? And right. that, of course, and because you want to hang out with the guys. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> true, yeah. So there, there was always that you know kind of standoffishness until a lot, like you said, until someone kind of opened the door, and then once the door opens, and it becomes it's like a domino, it starts becoming easier. It's not always super easy, but it just it's like now there's at least an in, and then it kind of can grow from there depending on right. the person. So it sounds like for Mike or for you, Mike kind of did that, and then. I guess obviously you had a bomb dog, so now you start going into the explosives detection community, which is a whole nother world, correct? Oh, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, so, and again, at this point, I'm still just handling. I didn't train my first dog until probably 2011. And so that was a, another whole person, you know, Luther Evan from Evolution Dog Training out of Atwater. Okay. He was a certifying official and we got talking and, you know, I, I, that's how I met him. He was certifying my dogs. And, yeah. And I was telling him about the muscle dog thing and he was like, and I just had Popeye at the time and I needed another dog. And he's like, you can do, I mean, here's the guy I'm just meeting. He's like, you can do this. Yeah. And took me under his wings for, I mean, a couple of years. And I mean, he's still, he's still wonderful. I could call him in a drop of a hat. And he was like, you can do this. And I never thought I could. And so, again, it took this person to be like, you can do this and yeah. I'll help you. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that was number two. And, you know, like I said, now I have 11 teams working and I have some that have retired. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. Probably trained 15 to 20 at this point, but 
like I said, having that mentor just it couldn't be. It, there's nothing more important to me, yeah. and and now I'm giving back and mentoring others, and you know, helping them to learn to train, or if they, you know, if they choose to, or just to handle, because you got to give back, and if you're not in that mindset, mm-hmm. then. I, I don't know. I don't think you're in it for the right reasons. Sure. And there's also quite the the shift in the say diversity within the dog community now too cuz you know I'm like what you bringing up I I try to have interns and turn those interns into uh, employees and things like that by helping and the demographic shift is actually quite a bit now where it's almost significantly women versus men. And uh-huh. I, I mean, the ones I work with, I have four women and one guy. And yeah. a lot of my friends who have been doing it a long time, so, you know, us crusty old guys, you know, kind of thing. I'm, at least I'm still the younger side of that equation, but I've, I've now look at conferences and I'm like, yep, I'm the old group now. <laughs> so yeah. the, yeah. Uh, but um, the number of women involved and the quality of work they do oh, yeah. is, it, it speaks for itself. I mean, you see the dog sport, the dog sport is mostly made up of women, probably 98% or more. And then now within just the working dog community, you know, there's still the roadblocks of the backgrounds, whether you're a cop or military, there's still some things that kind of still shift the demographic back to male, but... Uh, on the female side, though, it's growing like crazy. So my question is, with your program now, what would you say is the you know percentage of male versus female? Um, in my organization, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it is it's mostly female. Yep. I have a couple of key guys that well, one's my son, so mm-hmm. he he has no choice. Sure, yeah, um, he's born into it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and he's. He's 27 now and, you know, he's been handling a muscle dog since the beginning in 2020. So there's him. And then I have a couple of others, actually another one of my, he's my sometime handler. See, my issue is that a lot of my work Mm -hmm. is during the summer. I'm asking you to work for me weekends during the summer (laughs) from Memorial (laughs) Day to Labor Day. And so, you know, it's, it's difficult because I only have two lakes basically that are full-time lakes, but even the dog parts only on the weekends. Gotcha. And so, you know, I'm, I'm asking a lot. So I, I tend to have the younger people or, or the women where they just want a weekend job. Sure. Or, I mean, I have had a couple guys who do it too, um, but it just, that's just what it tends to be. But it seems to be more, the younger at this, as I'm growing, you know, and yeah. which is great because I'm mentoring some great young women yeah, and, and men. Um, one of, one of the guys that works for me, actually his mom's worked a bomb dog forever too. So oh, okay. I mean, I'm go. sorry, a, a detection dog. And so, you know, he grew up with it. Like my kid grew up. Yeah. So, so um, getting to, so obviously you did the, let's say bomb and drug side of things. How did you hear, like you said, you heard about, so I guess something was going on at Lake Mead with regards to muscles and that kind of got your attention. Right. So talk right. about like that part. And then there was a dog that was there doing it, correct? So the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, they were fishing game back then, fish okay. and wildlife now. They had dogs and 
their dogs found like abalone and mm-hmm. bear scat and all that. And so the woman, Lynette, who was running the program, when she heard about the muscle, she's like, well, why don't we just see if the dogs can find this too? And so she was the first one ever that I know of who put the dogs on the muscles. Okay. And so so she did that, proved that they could find the muscles. And then her people were, you know, doing these demonstrations to try to get people to care about this issue in the first place because nobody even heard of them. Yeah. Um, so when I went to that meeting and saw that, that then I was like, well, why not? I'm, sure. I may as well try. So I was the first private company in the nation you know, to yeah. do it. So you learned what they did and then just started doing it on your own, like training your own dog, like you said, to do it. And then exactly put yourself yeah. out there and say, hey, I'm a business. I can, you know, help either the state or whatever, like the ecological organizations. Yeah, I mean, that's the easy, yeah. It wasn't quite yeah, that sure. easy, but yeah. <laughs> no, but you had, I mean, you had to hustle to go let people know. Well, I mean, I what. What I started doing was like, I went to all of the meetings in the West about the muscles. So like any conference that they had about the muscles when they were even talking about the muscles, Mm -hmm. because again, the whole West didn't even know about them. And so um, there's a Western regional panel, which is, you know, a a group that deals with this. So I'd go to their meetings every year and then Calms California Associated Lake Management. You know, I just started Mm -hmm. like becoming part of all of these groups which again kind of made me an expert on it just because everybody was learning nobody knew about them and so everybody was learning and so i got it it was cool because i got a growth with it and the people who train the actual inspections um it's called wit training watercraft inspection training You know, I I go to the trainings and then I finally started actually doing the training. So that's not even a dog part, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a part of the whole muscle infestation. I mean, that was about two and a half years of that before I even had a dog because like I said, it took me that long to get the sure. permit. So I was doing all this background stuff before I even had gotcha. the dog. And I was telling people, I'm going to have a dog. So that's where that all started. But what, what was great about that is then people started knowing mm-hmm. me and trusted me and by the time I had a dog it was like well you know we'll call Debbie you know type of thing and so kind you know and the fish and um California Department of Fish and Wildlife they would go do trainings and I would go on my own time on my own dime and when they would do a training I'd show up and do a demo with the dog you know just to show whoever was learning about it and so you know it's there's a lot of legwork you know to becoming a successful business and on your own time. Of course, (laughs) you got to grind it out. You got to go out there and just like the, you know, you look at any of the major entrepreneurs in the world, the Mark Cubans and Jeff Bezos and all those, they hustled. They went door to door, did what they had to do and built something just like you did. You put in your time, you know, made the contacts, learned the skill Without the dog, right. learn what you what it was, and then by doing that inadvertently, you're making the connections, which then helps you go. Okay, now I know which direction to go, and keep putting my face out there and my name, and and then I think it also helps formulate the business plan because you get to hear straight from you know, let's say the end user what they're looking for, what they need, and then right. you can kind of design off of that. Correct. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so like the perfect example of that is so the quagga and zebra mussels full grown, they're about the size of a thumbnail. Oh, wow. But when they're in the larval stage, they're actually microscopic, mm-hmm. right? So nobody can find them. So anybody who does any boating, when you go to a lake, you'll see signs that say clean, drain and dry. The whole point of the dry is because if there's any water in there, the villagers, which are the larval stage, could be living there and that could be a vector for spreading okay. them. And so everybody's, how do we find the villagers? How will we find the villagers? And so I'm like, well, let's figure out if the dogs can mm-hmm. find the villagers, right? You know? And so, I mean, for years I was like, how can I do this? I mean, you need special microscope for it and you have to obviously be at a lake that has them yeah. and, and all that. And so there was a researcher in Vegas actually who had done research that showed that the villagers could live up to 30 days in the right environment in water. And I was like, that's crazy because we'd always been told they were really, really fragile. And so, you know, it was like, well, they're not as big of a deal, right? Because they're really fragile and they're going to, they're going to probably die. And then here he goes and proves that like, no, they can, they can live almost as long as the adults mm. can, like 27 days. And so so I reach out to the guy and I'm just like, hey, is this true? Because I'm giving people misinformation at yeah. this point, right? Because we don't you know, know the research hadn't been done. So it wasn't mis exactly. Yeah. Thank you. That's very <laughs> graceful. And <laughs> and so I call the guy and I'm like, and he's like, Yeah, no, this is what we figured out. And then I'm telling him what I'm doing. He's like, I love dogs. And I was like, want to do a study with me? And he's like, sure. And so, so, and by now he's moved to New York. Right. And so he's like, okay, I'll come to Vegas and do it with you. So I contact California department of fish and wildlife. I was like, I only have one dog at this point. I'm like, can you bring some dogs so we can do this? And they're like, sure. And so, I mean, somehow I get everybody to come on their own dime to do this. I paid for like him to fly out and for his hotel, but like I didn't have to pay him. And I mean, it was just like this wonderful thing. And and we actually, none of us had ever done any research with mm-hmm. dogs. You know, I, I'm just a dog lady. And so, I mean, you know, we have this whole issue where we put it in buckets and the dogs are knocking the buckets <laughs> over and water's going everywhere. And, you know, so then we try a different circular configure You know what yeah. I mean? It took us. We, we put bricks in there. I mean, because we had no sure. clue. And, but we did it and we got through it and, and we did prove that the dogs could find them, which was amazing. What was the key to that? What was, because like you said, you know, you come from the world where it was boxes and it was things you could hold in your hands. And, yeah. and, and, and of course the odor was super strong. And now right. you're going into something microscopic in water, right? What was what did you guys kind of learn that was the that made it make sense for the dog? Well, what we did was we started. Here was a really interesting mm-hmm. part. So my dog was the only dog that only found mussels. He had never been introduced to any okay. other odor ever, and the other dogs had multiple odors. And so what was interesting was, and we did a really high concentration the first time we did like 2000 villagers per pint or, you know what I mean? It was, it was a really high concentration because we wanted to introduce the odor to them. And 
what was really interesting was my dog was the only one where we introduced the Bellagers and he was like, yeah, this is it. Mm-hmm. The other dogs, it just took a sure, minute. Sure, his context was you different. You know, they smelled it and they were like, this is interesting. We said sit and they're like, okay, yeah. this is it. You know yeah. what I mean? But So that was really interesting. So the odor m- must be close enough to the adults where they recognize, you know, where he recognized it. And since then, you know, I always start them on the adults because I don't have the villagers. When we do go training somewhere that has the villagers, they, they've all, all my dogs, you know, pretty much recognize it right away or, or after the first time you tell them to sit. So that's, that's been really interesting. And you know, so much more about that kind of thing than I do, but I'm just telling you my observations. So that was really exciting. So then we finish it and and then he goes, okay, here's all the information. Go write paper. And I was like, <laughs> what? You're kidding, yeah. right? And he's like, well, no, I, I just was your researcher. And so that took like another two years because I didn't know how to write a yeah. paper. And I'm like hiring grad students to help me and they don't, they don't understand what's happening it was just it was a nightmare and so we did finally get published okay. yep <laughs> so in 2016 so that was exciting oh yeah yeah and then yeah never on my bucket list no yeah ever to be <laughs> to be a you know a author on a paper but it's yep. happened and and I'm proud of it you know and so yeah, so that was exciting. And then working dogs for conservation, mm-hmm. who they do do a lot of research. They had some dogs that found missiles as well. And so they actually repeated, they never, I haven't read it because they never published yeah. it, but they actually, you know, took what we did and I'm sure elevated it and, you know, did it right the first time. <laughs> learned learned the lessons. Well, that's always the, that, the best aspect is let somebody else, you know, kind of feel your way through the dark, and then after that, you've got a little bit a little bit of light there now to kind of follow. Yeah, and and so it was really exciting that they basically redid the study and and had the same conclusion that yes, the dogs absolutely, which find is the very dollars. validating for you guys and what you did. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. I mean, I'm like, because they, you know, they know what they're doing as far as this is what they do. Yeah. And so, um, so that was exciting. And then, yeah. And so, but here's uh, this, I'm really excited about. So actually this September we've gotten a grant. Well, Texas Tech Mm -hmm. got a grant. Nathan Hall. And uh, Nathan Hall and Paul Bunker. And so basically Paul calls me and he's like, Hey, we want to do this study basically to figure out the fewest number of villagers the dogs can find. And then that water, we're actually going to do eDNA testing on and almost pitting the dogs against eDNA. So he's like, you already have the muscle dogs. You want to come bring your dogs? And I'm like, "Um, yeah. yeah." And so I'm really excited about that. We'll be doing that this September. And they're both so awesome to work. I mean, I get to work with Nathan a lot and I just interviewed Paul you know, and yeah. it's, you know, and Paul's lucky in the sense that he's right there and, and he has a lot of free time to, I say that in, in you know, tongue in cheek kind of way because he does and he doesn't, but he does devote a right. lot of his time now to the research side is what, and that's where Nathan needed a lot of help too, just because he had the undergrads and he had, you know, 
availability and space and things like that, but he needed people like us, the practitioners out there. Dog yeah. And, and Paul kind of needed the research. So it was like a good little match made in heaven. And yeah. I get to go play on certain stuff with them too. So it's cool to see that you get to do this because one of the number one things I got asked recently when I was doing a uh, conference for uh, conservation or the National Canine Conservation Organization to, you know, there's so many different things. There's, you know, also the the eggs from different types of fish and, you know, sure. and, and if, if it's related to this type of salmon, are the eggs that different? And there's so many avenues to go down. When I was talking to Nathan about it, he was like, it's, it's always a funding issue. Number one, number right. two is, you know, it's also a very regional type of thing because certain things are problematic in certain regions of the United States and not in others. But how long does it take before, right. like you just said, I mean, I was literally just watching, I think it was Lone Star Law on, on Animal Planet there, and they were talking about the zebra mussels you know, being a major problem for their area, and they show this boat that's just covered in mussels. And the guy right. brought the boat in to get worked on. Of course, the boat company had to call, you know, Texas, you know, wildlife. And then they came over and then had to cite the guy for all the muscles all over his boat that he probably, it was just lack of care, I think, of the boat, you know. So then, of course, it became infested with them. So then they had to repay right. to remove all of that and do it safely so it doesn't transfer anywhere else. But, I mean, there's just so many different things. I just want to take a quick second and welcome to our show, one of the new sponsors here at Canines Talking Sense. It's an application for your phone called Search Dog Timer or SDT. You can find Search Dog Timer currently on the Apple App Store. It's not yet out on Google, but if you have an iPhone, you're good to go. What this app does, it allows you to take a picture of your search area. And in that search area, you can place up to four icons or four markers where your odor is at and what the odor is. And as your dog searches, you can just tap the button on your screen when the dog makes a find. And it gives you a timestamp of when the dog has located that target odor. What's unique about this is it gives you information on search duration. How long did it take your dog to go from beginning its search to making the first find, uh, going from that find to the next find, and it lays it out nicely on a photo. And when you've completed your search and you hit complete, it becomes a photo in your photo reel where it shows you where uh, your, your hides are at and when your dog actually found those specific hides. So it's a fun little app to kind of use and to document your search duration and search times. And again, you can find this on the Apple App Store called Search Dog Timer SDT. And we hope you like it. I know the developer of this app would love your guys' feedback, input. Uh, as with any app, they're always able to update, uh, make changes, uh, you know, do things that we're looking for as end users. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it. Go check out the Search Dog Timer app on the Apple App Store. Canines Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. 
Ford Canine Club Channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com slash webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford Canine now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. Are you looking for quality detection dog training equipment? We have a variety of items on our website at FordK9.com. We have the glass jars. We have the odor shaker cans. We have magnetic boxes to hold your odors in. We also are a vendor for the portable scent wheel that's made by Pat Nolan at TacticalDirectionalK9.com. This portable scent wheel is made of stainless steel. It has six arms and folds up to where you can carry it in a bag and take it with you virtually anywhere. There isn't a device out there like that, especially when it comes to wheels that is that portable and that easy to use. So you can order that wheel from us or go visit Pat Nolan's website, tacticaldirectionalk9.com, or like I said, go to fordk9.com, go to our online store, and look at any of the variety of detection-related equipment items that we offer for sale. Again, we offer this for any of our students that come here, but you don't have to be a student in order to get these items. Just go to our website, check it out, FordK9.com. Without going down too many wormholes, with the zebra mussels, you know, as you got started, so... Is it just as simple as putting muscles, for lack of a better description, into a box and the dog going to the box and you know learning the odor that way, or is there, or is there, did you have to basically enhance your protocols for odor? Like, did you have to? Okay, I have to be better about you know how I store it, or you know what I put it next to, or what I put it in, because also they're, they're in water, so there's that whole dynamic to deal with. Uh, how did you go about that? Well, the um, like I said, I got permitted through California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And actually, part of the reason why it took so long was because there was no protocols. Mm-hmm. There was no protocol for them to give anybody muscles or for how to store them or any of that. And so I actually had to help them come up with sure. the protocols for it. So we're not allowed to have 
live mussels. So they supply them to me and they're already dead and okay. frozen. And so, so actually storage wise, it's kind of great because yeah. they're just, for, they're in the yeah. freezer. I mean, I have a special drawer that's just for my okay. mussels. You know, I really don't want it next to my chicken. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It'd be a little fishy tasting. And so, <laughs> yeah. So originally, so as far as training the dogs, I mean, it's a nice, big, stinky okay. odor. So it's not an issue. It literally, I, you know, would put the toy in with the odor or the odor in mm-hmm. with the toy or what mm-hmm. have you, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And, and it's, it's pretty quick because it's, it's a big, nasty odor. And then you go down to just a couple of muscles and all that. So that, that part's not an issue so much. One of the, the issues that we had was like, obviously we don't want to take the muscles with us to a sure. lake. And I mean, at first, again, this was kind of even before the DNA, you know, we would, what I would do is I would take, I would literally take baby socks okay. and I would put like, you know, 10 muscles in a baby sock and tie the top. And so that's how I would hide okay. them for the dogs because it's easy to retrieve, it contained them completely and all of that. And that works so well. Now you got tads. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I need to. I need to get me a tad. Well, maybe I'll have to um, uh, hit a certain woman up named Michelle who might be listening to this yes. at a time and see what we can do for you. <laughs> yeah, I've seen. I've seen them, and I've been tempted. I just haven't done it because I'm like, yeah, those are awesome. Yeah, well, this is a reciprocal relationship because, as far as I know, right now, that would be the first time use for something like that. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, as as we talk out loud here, we, we will definitely, and I'm sure if she listens to this, uh, you might be getting a phone call. <laughs> cool. Yeah. No, we'd love to try yeah. it out and, you know, figure it out. But, and then when eDNA, so. And, and what is eDNA, just so the listeners can kind of have a better understanding? So, it's environmental okay. DNA. So, in the past, when they're checking the water for the muscles, what they would do is they would get samples of the water and they would physically look under a microscope for the villagers, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, so it's very difficult. It's very labor intensive. So then environmental DNA comes along and basically you take the water and you throw it in the lab and the lab says that there's the DNA of the muscles in it. But the problem is, is just because there's DNA in the water, Mm -hmm. right? Doesn't necessarily mean there's a breeding population, yeah. you know, but it, it's a clue, right? It's a clue saying, hey, we want to look closer here. We want to sample here more. We want to make sure. Well, the last thing I ever wanted to do was to be the person who, and I never did. Mm-hmm. So yeah. don't anybody <laughs> think I did, but I don't want to be the person leaving the baby sock on the boat and the boat going in the water. And now I've spread DNA yeah. somewhere. Yeah. So what happens is if a lake pops positive for the villagers or the DNA, they go on what's kind of called a suspect okay. list. And they're on that list for three oh, years. Wow. So for three years, everybody assumes you have the muscles and your lake is voodoo. And nobody, if you boated on that lake, nobody wants you anywhere near uh, them. And so, yeah. And I'm like, I don't want that responsibility. Sure. So I want to be anywhere near that. So now what I've started doing, this is just for in the field, right? Because the dogs need to Mm -hmm. win. We have to have, we have to have something, right? So like today, right? Memorial Day weekend, 
I had one team do 108 boats, another team do 100 and I think 30, and then another one do like 120. This is, you know, one yeah. dog. Wow. And so, yeah, they need a reinforcement every yeah. now and they need their paycheck. So what I've started doing now is I just do scented cloth mm-hmm. or sock. Mm-hmm. And so I'll put the muscles on on a layer and then I'll put paper towel on top of it and then I'll put my socks or I'll just cut up a t-shirt or something like that on top of that and let it let it scent up and then they're just hi- they're just hiding that piece of cloth. Yeah. And so there's no chance that we're transferring any DNA or anything like that and it's a it's a whole lot less scary. Yeah, and if you get your hands on <laughs> Wattman paper, that'd be another one I would think that would work well for you. Yeah, well, the problem, I mean, I should definitely look at it, but we need to be able to retrieve it real quickly. We're on a boat. We, you know, I we don't have four yeah, sets. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that makes total sense because that, that's the one where the like you just said to be able to put it out, retrieve it quickly. Yeah, then you you do need something that's easier to get a hold of. Yeah, you need. Yeah, yeah. So like you know. A, a bright yeah. <laughs> pink baby talk is, to... is, is a pretty nice yeah. thing to grab. Yeah, so that's that's how, how we do it in the field. And then, of course, when we're training or, you know, troubleshooting and doing that kind of stuff, we're, we're using not just a scented, sure. scented sock. <laughs> so how do you train the difference between the villagers and the muscle themselves? How do you deal with that? Because obviously, in some cases, it's microscopic, like you said. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's all about, it's just exposure. So like I said, I always start them on the Uh adults and then uh, there's only like once or twice a year, I even have access to villagers. I mean, we'll, we'll like load up and drive to Arizona to go to Lake Havasu just so that we can get the dogs exposed to the villagers. So it's not, and then we just expose them and we stay for two or three days and we just do a bunch of stuff and we have a really cool video i think it's on my website but we literally and i don't remember how many but it was like 27 villagers we put in a kayak and we put the kayak on top of my armada Mm -hmm. and every single dog caught it it was i mean it blows this is why i love this i mean look at how many years i'm doing this and i get excited because like how much can that not blow your mind they're they are amazing (laughs) animals and we never give them nearly enough credit we think of many times we know much more about them than what we really do and then we really yeah. get involved and think that we should do this or do that to help them when really just like you just described they actually don't need a whole lot the more we allow them to work and do what they've been born to do in, in certain circumstances with using their nose it's amazing right it, you know, that's why, like, when I talk to the various researchers that are part of projects where they're constantly testing machine versus dog, every single one I've talked to said nothing in our lifetime will, will happen that will beat a dog in the same kind of category, in the same kind of way we use dogs now. So, right. as much as we hear about, you know, developing technology and various things that are very good in the technical aspect of identifying an odorant or things like that, there's still nothing that in our lifetime that will beat a dog or be as easy to use as a dog. So, that says a lot about just how amazing that nose is. Right. The only thing that I would change to that sentence is the right dog. Yes, of course, of course. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Because (laughs) Not just your pet foo-foo. 
but it, but even then, Nathan had a great study. I don't know if he told you. Right, I remember pugs, that. How the pugs. Yeah, yes, the outdid pugs, the German shepherds. Absolutely. Go figure, right? <laughs> yep, yep, yeah, yeah. No, but I'm just. I mean, for working, you know, yeah. Not not that they're not all. Com- they're probably capable, but they have to. That's the other thing I really like to explain to people. The dog has to want mm-hmm. to do this. It has to be what they live for, what they want to do. You can't force the dog. You can't force a dog to be out in a hundred degree weather on the asphalt sniffing boats and booties unless they are enjoying themselves otherwise you're just walking a dog around a boat and nothing's happening and you're just pretending you know what i mean the dog has to want to do this it has to be the right dog with the right attitude and then of course it's the handler's job to keep them motivated and keep it fun you know yeah they're not going to just do that on their own you've you've got to keep the motivation and keep them cool and and all that but you know, it's got to be, it's got to be that that right dog. And, and so, since we're on that topic, so basically, what your job and the handler's jobs entail is the, when the boats come off the lake, or is it as a place when they go on the lake, on. they are sniffed right. by the dog teams before entering the lake to prevent the potential to be contaminated by somebody who's got the muscles somewhere, somehow, or the uh, villagers on the boat, they don't know about it yet. Is that correct? Exactly. So it's like a checkpoint. So it's like an entry point to like a bomb dog doing a a vehicle search of anybody entering a vent. This is the same concept, except you guys are looking for the muscles or the villagers. Yeah, exactly. And that's probably 95% of what Mm -hmm. we do, but then we'll also do other things like they'll put, what are called plates in the water to see if anything grows on them so they'll pull plates and we might have the dog sniff the plates or even water samples we might have the dog sniff those or shoreline we'll have the dogs walk the shoreline but 95 percent of what we're doing well is sniffing the boats but truthfully even more than that it's educating people because the beauty of the dog is everybody wants to know what that dog's doing, <laughs> and you tell them that the, you tell them that that dog's sniffing for muscles, and all of a sudden they yeah. care, and then you get to educate them about the muscles. And so, as wonderful and beautiful as the dogs are at what they do and keeping the lake safe by sniffing the boats, educating the boaters is above and beyond anything we could have known that these dogs were going to do for, for us in this situation. So then I will ask the question that you, that what you do is, so for many listeners who may not even know what this is about, what is the problem with the muscles? Why do we need to be careful about this? Why do we, why do we care? You know, if you're the boater, why would you care? Right. Right. So, so the muscles, again, they're, they're fairly small about the size of like a thumbnail. But what happens is you get two muscles in there and they breed and a single, a female, a single spawning, she can lay up to a million eggs, right? Now, maybe only 1% of those is going to live. That's still Mm 10,000, right? (laughs) So, you know what I mean? And now we're in a state like, oh, California, where they can spawn maybe two or three times Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. year each female and so what happens is once you get an established community of them they take over the waterways as far as their filter feeders and so they start doing filter feeding and so now they're eating all the nutrients that other animals would have been eating 
so they change the entire ecosystem because they're eating all of that. So those animals that normally would be eating that plankton or what have you aren't thriving. And the animals that would normally eat those aren't mm -hmm. thriving because they're not there. And so the interesting thing is when you first get the mussels in a lake, people get kind of excited because the water clears uh, up. Yeah. It gets pretty clear. And so people are like, well, this is fantastic. Water is yeah. clear. And it's because they're eating everything. So they're changing the ecosystem. Now, not only, yeah, the water's clear at first, but now the sun can penetrate farther. Yeah. And now we're going to get more of those algal uh -huh. blooms and all these other bad things. Yeah. You know, it it's just it changes everything. Yeah. It totally. And so besides that, then they're sharp. Yes. They die. Now your beaches are littered. Everybody's cutting mm -hmm. their feet. They stick to everything. So now if it's, let's say, a lake where we're doing irrigation or a Hoover mm -hmm. Dam, now you have to be cleaning everything constantly because they just take over and they attach and they start clogging the pipes and, and all that. So, I mean, there's just so many reasons they're yeah. bad and there's no way to get rid of at this point. And of course there's all kinds of research, but at this point there's basically no way to get rid of yeah, them. They, they take, I mean, just what I saw on the Lone Star law there is they showed like one of the particular lakes and it was just everything that had, anything like that was in the water was attached by those. And now they did look bigger than the thumbnail. So they, and I don't know if that's just a camera, but some of the muscles look pretty big, like almost the size of the palm of my hand or whatever. Okay. No, they, yeah, it was, it was the angle. I mean, not that they can't be bigger. They can maybe be two inches, you know, but yeah, no, they're, they are not that gotcha. big in general, but yeah, but there are so many of them and they attach to each other and, and then they'll attach like to other clams and stuff. And then they, those clams can't uh, eat. Yeah. I mean, it's what yeah. they do all kinds of stuff. It's, it's just, is it regulated good. just wanna. to fresh water or is it also, does it come from the sea? No, they're fresh. These are okay. freshwater gotcha. mussels. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the biggest thing in almost all conservation aspects is, the ripple effect and utilizing dogs mm -hmm. to help us, you know, cause like I said, we may only see this first layer problem, but you know, it's X amount of years later that we pay the price for not paying attention to that first thing that, you know, that was seen or that yeah. was developed. How did they get into this? Was it a project kind of like we talked about where they were like, Oh, we want to make the waters clear. Let's, you know, put this. Okay. No, no, no. No, um, they came over from like Ukraine to the Great Lakes back in the okay. 80s. And so basically a big, huge tanker with ballast mm. water. So, you know, they pulled water in Ukraine and they drove over here and then they got here and they let their water out near the Great Lakes. And so the Great Lakes got gotcha. them first. And that was in the 80s. And then it took and then it traveled all, all around in the east you know, going down river and all uh -huh. that. And somehow on somebody's boat, most yep. likely in 2007, I believe is when Lake Mead was the first one west of the 100th Meridian mm. that had yeah. them. And now, you know, they're in Southern California. Because yeah. all those people going to California are going from California to Vegas to go to Mead and then bring their boats back to their, their lakes over yeah. there. Yeah. Well, and plus they did travel down the Colorado uh, River. They got into Lake yeah. Havasu, Lake Mojave, you know, and so, 
you know, we're just, as far as here, we're trying to save them from coming in Northern California. They're not in Oregon. They're not in Washington. They're not in Idaho. We're trying to help preserve those areas as well. It's crazy how that, how that goes. Now, when you're working these dogs that are trained to detect these muscles, what are some of the other things that these dogs may generalize to or become super interested in, you know, what would cause an alert that's not necessarily what you were, I wasn't a muscle? Really, we haven't seen much because there's not not going to be other kinds of muscles, say, okay. on the boat. I mean, and that is something I've done. I've gone and got like the ocean muscles and other things and put them out and the dogs just ignore them, which is great. I mean, we'll have a situation more, more than anything. Truthfully, our issues, training issues are dog pee on okay, the tires, yep, yep. right? Or stinky bait, uh, catfishing yeah. and stuff. So the dog might give a like, whoa, something's really good up there. But, you know, it's stinky bait or, you know, something yeah, like just that. just interest versus target. Yeah, Interest, yeah. We don't have any, yeah, hardcore. Like closely related other things that can make the dog have to. That's, yeah. that's kind of nice because, like I said, when I was talking to talking to some of the other conservation dog handlers out there, it's like ones that look for scat. Well, okay, you know, scat from, let's say, a coyote versus scat from the bear and, you know, going through all the digestive things that are different. And, you know, as conservation canine really grows and, you know, I I think to work like yours and, you know, same with with the conservation organizations that are out there, like Conservation for Working, Working Dog Conservation, it's really helped create more use for dogs that is highly relevant and important to be out there to, to help in various cases such as this with the muscles, but in the other ones where other evasive species are happening or where things are, you know, I know there's a, another friend of mine, she does, she looks for bats, bats that have been killed by the uh, fan or by the, I'm sorry, by fans, by the, uh, by the windmills and things like that. Yeah. Windmills. And uh, yeah. so it's just, to me, we haven't probably even scratched the surface on all these other things that we will start seeing more dogs do, which is great because it does start giving, you know, as I go around doing a lot of nose work classes and things like that, one of the first things that a lot of, or a number of people that are involved in the sport community, they want to go do something professional with their dog. Now, like you said, you know, not every dog can go do these things, but there are some that, you know, I've definitely watched and been like, man, I wish I owned that dog because, you know, they have right. really, really good dogs, you know, that are intermingled with all kinds of dogs. And, you know, and you see, I've watched because, again, I do a lot of work in the search and rescue world now, too, is you see the inundation of, well, I want to do this more than just a sport. So then, you know, the avenues have been pretty much search and rescue because that was the only other volunteer aspect that could turn into, you know, maybe a job of some type for people. But now conservation, I think, might be one of those venues where people that do have a dog and a good quality dog that might be have, or that sport dog gave them that leapfrog effect. You know, they, they learn detection by doing the sport and then met right. somebody who does some type of conservation, learns the conservation aspect, and then finds them a dog that can go do that job. So they transition from being that competitor to that professional and, and, and then are able to you know, enter a career like you and I get to do, something that you just love doing. 
And and that's right. a, I know that's a lot of driving force for a lot of people that in the the noble side of you know doing something important with a dog, but um, it's also just as you pointed out throughout the uh, interview, it's a lot of damn work too. You know, it oh, isn't yeah. just as simple yeah, like yeah. oh yeah I'm gonna go find muscles today. You know, like he's like me and you joking right. around. You know, it's getting attention now, but you had put in the time that no one got to see long before what they see now. And like my point of view was like, Oh, look at that. It went from zero to, you know, where you're at now in like two years. <laughs> you're like, no, right, no, no, exactly. no. Yeah, no, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, in Hawaii, they have a really, I'd have to look it up, but they have a really good volunteer program where they will have people that volunteer and like go and find some of the invasive plants mm-hmm. and stuff. I know that they have a, a really good program that I follow them. It's a, it looks like it's a fantastic yeah, program. Yeah, no, definitely. So, and that's mm-hmm. a great way to get people involved is to start off in that, like you said, apprenticeship slash volunteer. Right, yeah. And I mean, even with our dogs, we could put more odors on them because there's like weeds and stuff, like milfoil weed, you know, that you don't want in your mm-hmm. lake. But there's a lot of lakes that have it. Mm. And so... If I had a dog that was assigned to a specific lake, we could do that, but that's just not how we work at this yeah. moment. Now, I, I did train the dog Puddles for Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Um, she does just find the mussels, but if they had asked to put like another odor on her because it's something that they didn't want in Washington, it, it would have been no sure, problem. Sure, and I, and I would say one of the things I think you got to see is how nice it is when the dog has clarity of a simple task. You know, whether it be one, two odors max, how much easier yeah. that becomes on the dog, you know, and on the handler too. But in turn, you're not trying to, it doesn't require overly reading as far as like, okay, well, I'm over here. So it could be this now versus, you know, it's just right, straight up. Right. I was just talking to a friend of mine. He does the pipeline detection and the, yeah. it's a straightforward, it's one odor. You put it into the pipeline and the dogs find it if it's coming right, out. So, right. and on top of that, the dogs get to dig as their response, which is another easy, natural thing for the dogs to do. Yeah, that is nice. That's <laughs> yeah. really nice. So, yeah. and again, the thing I look at in conservation, dogs are attracted in many cases to another animal smell. So that gives you a little bit of something more to work with than let's just say taking a, a random chemical and hoping they make the assumption or that you want them to do it first versus something that does kind of, oh, that's interesting. That's another you know species or whatever. Some had to start naturally inquisitive to that smell. So then makes it that reinforcement game a little bit faster and easier to accomplish. So. Right. Yeah. It's, but again, kind of like what you're saying, you have to understand what the target yeah. is, where the target will be, in what situations it's going to be, how we're going to look for it. You know, you have to understand all of that before you just be like, oh, exactly. I'm going to go find Bobcat Scott. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? oh, yeah. I mean, there's so much you need to know before you jump into that as well. So, And the conservation side is so much proofing, depending on what it is you're looking for. Some of it, you spend more time proofing off of things that are non-target because they're so close related You know, than you really have to do on the target. Target's the easy part. It's the constant yeah. putting out all these other things in your search area so the dogs learn just to ignore those things because they're, they're just or you know naturally inquisitive and then having a handler really get good at reading their dog in interest versus target and you know yeah. there's you know nuances that come to that and the more you know your dog the better that becomes but 
still not an not an easy task and not something you're just going to jump into like you just said. So so how do people because you like you said you got to do a paper so I want people to be able to read this. How do people find the paper and if you don't mind if you send it to me, I'll share it on the Talking Sense discussion page just so oh, just sure. so people can be inquisitive and read about it. But beside that, how do they find it? Well, it, it was in the Rebic journal and I don't ha- it was in 2016. Yeah. So literally if you t- if you typed in Deshaun, which is yep. my last name, and muscles canine rebic, it okay. would come up. I'm that's that's how I'll go find yeah, it. Yeah, and I, and I, and I will make sure I, I put a link to it in this show in the show notes here, so people can find it easy that way too. So it'll be in the discussion page. It'll be on the podcast notes. Right. Cool. And then, how do people like? What's your website? How do people find you? If they have questions. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah. So my website, I actually have two. My website for muscle dogs is muscle dogs, but it's M-U-S-S-E-L-D-O-G-S dot info, I-N-F-O. It's hard getting people past the muscles in your (laughs) arms. Exactly. to, To the muscles in the ocean or the water. Yes. Yeah. And then my other one is dogswithjobs.info. And so that's kind of my training side, like where I would train a dog for you mm-hmm. to, you know, go find truffles sure. or, or something like that. Um, so it's my parent company. And, and that's so basically what you do with your parent company is, like you just said, you train people want to come to you to have their dog trained in whatever it is. That's what you guys do, huh? Um, I mean, I have. I don't have a ton yeah, of time right now, say. so I don't want to make this an infomercial, please. <laughs> but yeah, no, I I actually trained trained the dogs to find some stuff at the wineries. Yeah, I've trained a bed bug dog. Mm-hmm. I've done three PTSD dogs for veterans. Nice. You know, so I've done a little bit of everything. And um, your emails, obviously, yeah. they can just go to those websites. You know, tap the yeah, email button. Just click yeah. the, click contact. It's coming. Perfect. To me. Click the phone number. It's coming to me. There you go. (laughs) Well, I thank you for this. This is really fun information, new information. I look forward. I I plan on having you back on again just because, you know, this first one is always one where people kind of go, ooh, wow. And then, and I really want to help keep promoting the conservation side. So I have some ideas coming up of uh, like a roundtable podcast where we have a couple of us on and just talk about the different things and experiences just like what we just did today. But thank you for your time to do this. I know we joked around. I hit you up on one of your probably busiest days of the year to come up yeah. and talk to me for an hour on here. Uh, but I thank you very much for doing that. Yeah, no problem. Like I said, as long as long as it was after six. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> after I got home, I you know I w- I won't tell you that you know I got up and left the house at four. Oh this yeah, morning. no, that's why I was like <laughs> <laughs> to get to the lake. <laughs> and there's still tomorrow because tomorrow is Memorial Day. And there is still tomorrow. There is, so. but you know, is what we do, and and we love it. So and I and I thank you for doing what you do. Yeah, well, thank you. I I really enjoyed chatting with you as well, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, everybody, you have the information, and we thank you for listening to Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. 